0: The Brand Herald podcast, where leaders explore how great brands are built. Join Landon Wade, owner of Goodson Clothing and Supply Company, as he interviews business leaders and marketing experts to learn about the successes and failures of building great brands. One last thing the views and opinions shared by our guests do not necessarily reflect our own. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Brand Herald podcast, where we have conversations with leaders and and business people about building awesome brands. And uh, I'm your host, Landon Wade, owner of Goodson Clothing and Supply Co. And I'm excited uh, to have Jim Higdon uh, with me today from Cornbread Hemp. So uh, welcome, Jim. Thanks for being here.
1: Landon, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.
0: So I'm excited to do this. I think I had mentioned to you when we talked briefly that um, I had uh, attended a Rotary meeting several years back where you were the speaker and uh, not necessarily what we're here to talk about today, but you got a, you've got a background where you wrote a book called Cornbread Mafia, which we'll talk about a little bit. Yeah. But uh, before we get into that and cornbread, uh, cornbread hemp and those kind of things, the things you're doing today, would you just give everybody just an idea of who you are? A little, just tell them a little bit about yourself and, uh, and your background.
1: Sure. Um, like, like you said, my name is Jim Higdon. I'm a Kentucky native. I'm from Lebanon and Marion County, graduate of Marion County High School and Center College. Uh, and then, and then left and got degrees at uh, Brown University and Columbia Journalism School. Um, and while I was away at school, realized the value of the story from my hometown, um, where um, a bunch of country guys became a superlative band of outlaw cannabis growers known as the Cornbread Mafia. And it was just a you know an, an obsession of mine to figure out how to tell the story correctly. And I uh, uh, learned that skill set. Um, away at school, especially at the Columbia Journalism School, and came home in the late 2000s and um, dove in and write, wrote the, the the nonfiction account of Cornbread Mafia, which is how I started my career and how folks uh, first got to know me. Um, uh, the success of that book led me into a journalism career. I was covering Kentucky for the Washington Post, and cannabis policy for outlets like Politico um, and Thrillist. And in in 2018 covering the farm bill when hemp was getting legalized, uh, finally. Um, at the same time, my cousin, Eric Zipperly, who's younger than I and has a, an MBA and an e-com background was finishing a second, um, econ company that he had launched, uh, in Nashville and returning home. And he and I, uh, got together and we both kind of had pieces of a puzzle that we both like knew we, we needed to accomplish. The, there was only one opportunity. Um, to start a hemp brand at the time in the 2018. And we knew if we didn't try it then we'd never have that opportunity again. So we, we both dove in and started cornbread hemp in 2019 Launched product in 2019. And, um, um, that's, that's, that's how we got started.
0: Well, if I, if I roll back a little bit to, um, connect, like I am curious a little bit of like how the book, I mean, obviously there's the hemp connection, Tell us a little bit about how the book informed the business, you know, and, and how, what the work that you did on the book has informed the business and how, and maybe make that connection a little bit.
1: Sure. So a couple of things. So in, in one sense, uh, the book is a true crime tale about these outlaw guys who did this outlaw thing, but in another sense is a social history of our part of Kentucky and why this superlative cannabis operation happened in central Kentucky instead of somewhere else. Um, and so um really got to know why Kentucky and cannabis and hemp had had a great relationship, a relationship that went back several hundred years. Um, it's not a history or relationship that I learned about in school. It's something I had to do historical research on my own to piece together. Um, so in one sense, the book set me out as understanding, maybe uniquely, um, the importance of cannabis to Kentucky historically and, and, and that cannabis in Kentucky um, worked well together. Um, in another sense, uh, the book gave me, um, my first sense of, um, my, you know, my, a network in, in the state. It helped me navigate a lot of different aspects of starting business from, um, finding farming partners to, um, navigating the certified organic aspects of our business. Um, the, the book and the network of, of folks that the book had, um, um, provided for me, um, uh, helped me, um, piece like bring parts of that into the business, you know, to, to, um, get all under one roof.
0: Yeah. What were some of the things that you were seeing that led you to believe that 18 was the time? Like, you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, obviously my industry is sort of an evergreen industry, if you will. Um, But it definitely, you know, there are definitely times where it's like, okay, this is something that's going to happen and we need to get in. And if we're going to get in, we got to get in. And so what, what were some of the things that you were seeing that's like, man, this is the time to do it?
1: Well, 2018, the farm bill was going to legalize hemp outright. The hemp was legalized under pilot programs, uh, four years, five years before, um, and brands had established themselves in that, in that initial time. So when we were starting thinking about starting the company, uh, Eric Zippoli and myself, um, there were three or four, half a dozen dominant CBD brands, um, in the country. And almost all of them were THC free and trying to make themselves seem like something other than cannabis, trying to distance themselves from hemp and its history, And not embracing the the culture or the the the, the agricultural environment in which they were produced. In this case, Kentucky. Like it just uh, they were trying. Like it felt very um, pharmaceutical and distant from the plant and its um, you know where it's grown. And so that's the opportunity that we saw, Eric and I, right away, is that if we lean into THC with a real story from a real place from these real people. No one else is doing that. And um, uh, Eric's Eric's genius early on was just his uh, e-commerce um, marketing skills that I certainly did not have. Um, and that's how we really started to um, generate some interest online.
0: I feel like you might be referencing a little bit an article that I found that you wrote uh, in 2021, uh, maybe. Oh. The five marketing mistakes made by CD, too late. CBD brands. That
1: Oh, Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 It's on Ad Week, so what, maybe what, it was something it, you wrote before, but got posted there or something.
1: No, no, no. That's but, that. I thought you were talking about the Politico article. I was writing a Politico article in 2018 about the Farm Bill. Um, oh, gotcha. And so I thought that's what you were referencing. But that, yeah, that well, would, article would, is. Go ahead. Yeah.
0: And I, I was just going to say, I, there's a few of these articles that I want to make sure to pull up because I think it would be really good to post in the show notes. Um, yeah. in, in but but the one I'm referencing in particular is this one is kind of interesting because it was echoing, I think, some of the things you were just saying about the five marketing mistakes made by CBD brands and how to avoid them. And I won't, you know, go into all that necessarily now, but this will be something we link because it's pretty interesting. Uh, and you were just talking about some of it that uh, you know they were focused on those aspects that you mentioned.
1: The right. one that hit me it's that I thought
0: was just, interesting was fl- the flavored thing. That was kind of interesting.
1: Well, right, the people put flavor in their CBD products because the extract itself is bitter, so they're just covering up a bad product. Um, and if you do a flower only extraction, you don't have that problem, which is what we do. Um, and you know, it's becoming uh, essentially unique. Like it's just not done in in the space in in the industry like we do it. Um, and it makes it just a much cleaner, purer product that folks really respond to.
0: So you guys decide to start the business. Um, what were the, what were the first products? Like, how did you decide what the first product or products were going to be? And then the next thing we want to talk about is getting into the brand, which you and I talked about a little bit, which I love. And apparently Eric, Eric did, but yeah, what were the first products and how'd you decide that?
1: Um, my first revelation for CBD was a skin lotion. Um here's my desk. Uh my desk bottle of our CBD lotion. Um I have a skin condition on my fingers and uh everything the dermatologist gave me was junk and smelled bad and didn't work. Um and I found in I don't know 2017-2018 a CBD lotion uh from a brand um that was a, made with CBD isolate uh that took the inflammation out of my out of my hands um, for the first time, um, and so I had an understanding of CBD's effectiveness as a topical product first. So we definitely wanted to include uh, lotions and topicals in our in our in our opening line. Um, and um, from our market research, um, we learned, uh, or I learned from Eric, that um, you know we really couldn't do it as a topical line alone. We had to include um tinctures and capsules um and as we develop that further a pet product um so and in in to, f- to flesh out our opening line we had some um uh, uh essential oil roll-ons so like a carrier oil with cbd and uh, essential oils to roll on like your wrists and temples um to sort so I uh, think we launched with seven products um and of those seven initial products we make uh one two three four of them still um gotcha both both lotions in a different formula um the the tincture that we started with as a distilled we still make uh certified organic now uh the capsules that we started with we still we still make and a pet product that we started with we still make
0: and initially this was all sold just direct to consumer online. Am I is that correct?
1: That's correct. Rainbow Blossom in Louisville here was an early retail partner, and we we we've we've built out our retail program from there, but um, for the most part, yes, very much online D2C.
0: So the other couple areas that I'm interested in is um funding. So like I know that you guys and and, and I know there's some things you may not want to talk about, but to whatever degree you're comfortable. Um, because like my, my business is like a bootstrapped, you know, just sort of organically funded company on the okay. other end of the spectrum, just full on funded. So I just, and I think people who listen to this, not only are they interested in branding, but I think they're always interested in a little bit like, Hey, okay, I have an idea. Maybe I have a person in the family or a friend that helps me. How would I go about funding? And, uh, yeah, talk a little bit about that.
1: I mean, the, the, the greatest barrier to entry for startup and concept ideas is, is your first 50 K raised. Uh, it's, it's the hardest, it's the hardest to do. Um, and it, it it's very hard to do if you don't have um a network and we didn't have a great one, but what we did learn is that we had in Louisville um was WeFunder and WeFunders partnership with Render Capital that's local. So if you're a Louisville based startup, um and raise twenty grand on the WeFunder platform, Render Capital will match your first twenty. So boom, you're at forty. Um and so getting to fifty from there is a piece of cake and then you got fifty grand. Um And for a startup, for, for a sole founder, for a couple, you know, so like small founding teams first 50 grand is a lot of money. And, um, um, it can, you know, and, uh, we funder and render capital make getting that 50 grand really easy. Mm -hmm. Um, if you've got a great idea, if you've got people, if you've got a way to communicate that idea, um, um, the The WeFunder team says that Louisville is the easiest place in America to raise fifty grand uh, because of this partnership no with kid. Render, which which is you know kind of unique in the venture capital space. Like, it's just not something that's done elsewhere. It's really it's really a fortunate, lucky. I mean, not lucky because like it's, it's not you know an accident. Renders put a lot of work into this. Um, the, the The Render team has done a really great job envisioning how to support. Early stage startups people with ideas and and that's that's how you do it. we funder and render capital
0: interesting so and and you and Eric at this time it was just you two and you both still had full time jobs I assume that we're kind of funding lifestyle outside of this thing that you were working on
1: We ditched uh, our full time jobs I think mid twenty nineteen Eric was um, uh working at a high-end Italian restaurant, I was still tied up in some journalism obligations that I had to cycle out of. Um, so we were mostly undistracted, uh, but eventually, like e- even though we couldn't afford to pay ourselves, it became much more than a full-time job.
0: No doubt. Um, so tell me a little bit about, because I think I asked you when we talked initially about just the cornbread hemp brand, the logo, the mm-hmm. whole all of the aesthetics and I think I just assumed that you guys probably used an outside agency. And as I recall, you told me, no, that was all Eric. Am I remembering that right?
1: Um, Eric didn't design it. Eric um, uh, worked with a designer, uh but. Okay. Um, gotcha. Uh, I remember I was uh, off with, um, I was, I was in new Orleans over new years of, uh, of that year. So 2018 and 2019 and Eric was sending me logos. Like he worked, he worked all week long. And, um, uh, by the time I got back from New Orleans we had we had a logo set and it's the same logos that we that we work with today
0: yeah no and and I just I, I have I just really love the brand I remember so the way we got connected um, was that Andrea on and your team was looking to do mm-hmm. um, some mm-hmm. swag for I think a trade show that you guys were going to and Uh, reached out to one of the uh, vendor partners that we work with who in turn passed you guys along to us. And it was was actually kind of funny because your office is literally around the corner. And I jumped on the scooter and ran over and and, and spent some time Mm. with Andrea. But, and I just told her, I was like, man, I just love the brand. It's so simple and clean. Tell me a little bit about like, what ha- give me some maybe of the stages because it's it's been what four years I know you guys have raised additional money, you're obviously growing a lot now, mm-hmm. you're seeing additional partnerships, so you get sort of that initial seed capital, you've decided on products, you got a logo. what were some of the you know the milestones or some of the things that really like started okay, this got us to the next level and this got us to the next level
1: uh well that, that first we Funded campaign we ended up raising four hundred grand over seven months, oh wow, so that first. 50K turned into 400. Um, uh, And that got us through, that was the pandemic. Um, And then um, I'm just trying to think of our revenue number, like what year we are. So that was 20. We put that money to work in 21. We did 2 million in revenue. And then uh, in 22 we did six and a half million in revenue Um, and we raised an additional um, seed round that we closed earlier this year uh, of um, uh, $2 million. So we've raised 2.5 million to date. Wow. That's
0: crazy. And are you seeing most of the growth through some of the retail partnerships? Is it – Equal and balanced with online sales,
1: retail's been a difficult uh, sales cycle for CBD for a number of reasons. Um, to answer your question, the short version: we're still very, very heavily D C focused. Uh, we're working yep. on uh, expanding our retail footprint. We just launched into Fresh Time uh, a couple months ago. That's I saw that locations across the Midwest, and that's you know super uh, um, big news. That's taking the work that we've done at places like Rainbow Blossom and really getting us uh, you know like leveled up. Um, and we're working to continue that success, but we're still, um, you know, 90% or greater, uh, direct to consumer.
0: Um, what's interesting to me is I think that there's also some things that have been going on in the grocery space that sort of parallel, you know, what you guys have been doing for the last three. I mean, in other words, I don't know how to exactly say it, but it seems like the sentiment in the grocery space aligns pretty well with what you guys are trying to do. Is that the right, am I making sense? Is that the right way to say that?
1: It's a tricky context. Like there's definitely a movement yeah. in the grocery space towards wellness and supplements mm-hmm. and like natural living. Um, there's a whole natural living section. It's fresh time and it's very uh, well shopped by um, fresh time shoppers. Um, uh, but it's a context thing, right? Like our our, our products are relatively expensive in, in the context of a grocery store. Um, and so some grocery stores have difficulty establishing that context with customers and other stores are, are, are more successful at it. Um, and not all grocery chains, grocery stores will take CBD products because of the lack of regulations. So you've got, um, larger store chains like, you know, Kroger and Target and, um, uh, mainstream pharmacies like CVS and Walgreens won't touch ingestible CBD products until, uh, the FDA says so. Um, so there's, there's that challenge as well. Um, it's just a matter of navigating all that. But you know, in terms of the the buyer behavior in grocery relative to the pandemic, is it really uh, cut down on foot traffic? People weren't lingering in grocery stores. People were going in, getting what they wanted, they knew what they needed, and they were getting out. They weren't doing a lot of new product discovery. Uh, certainly not at a high price point item. So CBD during the pandemic took a really bad hit in retail and traditional grocery, natural grocery, um, and that's starting to come back. Uh, which is what we're seeing with Fresh Time. Um, people are now, you know, more likely to explore in the store. Whereas before they weren't uh, during the pandemic, you know, you had a mask on, you were getting your stuff, you're getting out.
0: I noticed recently that you and Eric were in DC uh, through mm-hmm. your social media and you guys were doing, mm-hmm. what What was some of the work that you guys were attempting to do down there? Does it have to do with the FDA stuff you just mentioned?
1: That's exactly right. So in, you know, in 2018 was the last farm bill uh, that, uh, remove cbd from the list of controlled substances um and hemp from the controlled substances act um and we thought that meant that fda regulations were a matter of course and they would be forthcoming and that just didn't happen so this year is another farm bill year so this is the next farm bill since 2018 and this is the year that we hope that the farm bill can um clarify exactly what cbd and hemp is is legal for like what we can do and like what the shape of that Uh, legality looks like because there's a lot of, um, pushing of, of the, of the envelope as to, you know, what's in and what's out, um, in terms of what was legalized, um, in 2018. And so we're in DC twice now this year, uh, talking to members and staffers in the House and Senate, uh, trying to, um, share with them where we're at in the business, you know, what we see in the industry and where we hope those regulations land.
0: Well, and I think you shared a little bit of the takeaways, but how, what was you know sort of like upshot of the takeaway of those trips? Are you feeling good and in the middle, not good?
1: Hmm. Yeah, in the middle, not good is a great way to think about it. Um, it's um, early July right now. So uh, we had hoped there would be a farm bill draft before the August recess. That seems unlikely. Um, and when we do see a draft of the farm bill, uh, from the House side, it's likely to not include any CBD regulations, um, um, but we have hope that the Senate um, could still include CBD on, in in its version or introduce it in the conference committee at the very end, which is kind of a tightrope walk that doesn't fill anyone with joy, uh, but still, like you know, like the last option that that could exist out there to make this happen.
0: Gotcha, and obviously, if that were to happen at some point, that would have that would create a tremendous opportunity for you all because it would open up a lot of options for sales. I would assume that are you know not interested at the moment because that's not done.
1: Yeah, like it. think tanks that are following the CBD industry are. Um, Looking at two sets of pro- of projections for the industry, like what the what the projections look like five years from now if FDA regulations do come in and what they look like if they don't come in, because whether or not they do or don't can has an impact of like uh, five billion dollars in market value <laughs> per year uh, by 2027. So all that starts to add up quite a bit, wow. you know you know year yeah. to year. No doubt.
0: Uh, just one other quick, do you guys use contract production for all the, I mean, uh, for, for all the product itself, I assume,
1: or are you we doing do not. It we bought, we, we bought our supplier last year. So now we're, Oh wow. Uh, we're vertically integrated. We'll be making more wow. noise about that, uh, uh, here soon, but we've, Man. we're fully vertically integrated. Those, those gummies that we sell, we make the lotions we sell. That's we crazy.
0: Make. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, So what I wanted to do now is just talk a little bit about maybe the stuff, you know, I know that you use, like, I I mean, I'm looking at, I'm on the website right now, cornbreadhemp.com which we'll talk about again at the end and just some other ways to get connected. But you guys are, you know, you're always wearing, you know, logo and logo branded items and stuff. What role do you see, you know, branded clothing and promotional items playing as you guys continue to build the brand and tell the story?
1: It's definitely part of it. Like, you know, promotional items, swag, that sort of thing. Like, you know, especially with customers who feel connected to the brand, you want to give them something to go uh, share things in the world as a conversation starter. Um, and um, it's great to see fans of the brand and customers, you know, out in public, taking pictures on social media, wearing the gear. It's, it's really special.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah, I think we actually did uh, a like it was a seed uh air freshener i believe that we did that you guys gave oh, uh-huh. at one of the trade shows and then i'm looking yeah and i'm actually you know on the online it's i think he's wearing like a sweatshirt and stuff so that's cool um what are some of the things uh as we kind of come down the home stretch here uh you mentioned that there you guys are going to be talking more about the uh, vertical integration what are the what are some of the things that you that you can share that you guys are going to be working on or that will be going to be coming that people can look for
1: uh, well, we're, um, we're sponsoring this, um, a softball league in New York city, a New York city, the New York media softball league that's happening this summer. It's really exciting. Um, so there'll be more about that, that, uh, over the course of the summer. Um, we've applied for the fast 50 this year, which is, um, Louisville business versus, um, uh, 50 fastest growing companies in Louisville. Uh, we anticipate, um, uh, uh, being in, in this year's class of the Fast 50. So that's exciting. Um, and you know there's 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 new products in the pipeline uh, that'll be out later this quarter uh, that you'll hear about and uh, um like I said, this acquisition news um, about our supply chain um, is is something we'll be we'll be talking a lot about too here soon
0: what's your sense of i mean you shared revenue numbers for the last couple of years? do you have a sense of where you think you might or hope you might end up for twenty three
1: uh We're projecting 15, but we'll beat it. Wow.
0: That's crazy. Man, I have so many other questions I'd love to ask at some point because I'm always just curious about, you know, how you manage the accounting on that side, how you guys have scaled up in all the different areas that, you know, just the higher. I mean, there's just so many things about it that in a situation, in a conversation like this, you gloss over just so many details that have to be done well. Um but another time and place. But I'll tell you the other thing I thought you so you mentioned Thrillist. I thought it was interesting, and I'll put this in the notes too the how I went from an outlaw weed dealer to a legitimate weed business person, which so that was fairly shortly after the book, it looks like, and pre company. Is that right?
1: That's right. That was in that period when I was uh, a cannabis journalist uh, working at a pretty high level. Uh, that story from Thrillist is really um, one of the best pieces of journalism I wrote. I interviewed, uh, I don't know, maybe a dozen. Uh, former outlaws who had successfully transitioned in, into the legal market—all uh, of them were really fascinating stories. And then, in, in the the type of story that is, is a um, uh, an oral history. So I transcribed all of the interviews and then clipped all of them as quotes and sort of have a set of, a set of questions, and then each of those characters kind of answer. Those questions in their own words throughout it. So none of my writing in there. It's all interviews and outtakes yeah. of those interviews, kind of arranged in a thoughtful way. Um, and it's a, I, I still get comments and, and people mentioning it to me on social media. Like the, that story is still alive and well. Um, it's a, that, that's a good piece that I wrote.
0: I haven't read all of it, but I was reading a little bit. I thought I, th- I thought it was a little prophetic too. I guess you're not you're not outlaw turned legit, but I guess you're just observer of outlaws turn legit or something like that. Is that (laughs) something like that?
1: That's exactly right.
0: (laughs) Um, well, we're getting close to 30 minutes and I know I promised you would keep it tight for you because I know you're busy. I I'm really, I appreciate you doing this. I'm excited. Um, I know that the things that we do are such a small piece of the pie for what you all do, but it's exciting to try to be a part of it and support the things that are going on. And I look, um, I look forward to continuing to see the journey.
1: Good deal. I really appreciate you having me. Yep.
0: And so for those really quick, last thing, Jim, um, is mm-hmm. if you could just tell them a little bit, the best way to connect with you and the company, I know I mentioned the URL a little bit ago, but, uh, just give them the best places to look.
1: Sure. We're at cornbreadhemp.com. Um, and at cornbread underscore hemp on Instagram at cornbread hemp on Twitter. Um, and, um, uh, we're on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. Uh, So your social media platform of choice, you should be able to find us. And and like you said, we're at cornbreadhemp.com.
0: Absolutely. And like I said, we will include some of the things I mentioned here in the episode notes so that you can find these articles as well. So, Jim, I can't thank you enough for doing this. And I look forward to talking again soon.
1: Landon, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brand Herald Podcast. For more information, please visit thebrandherald.com. Also, please subscribe to our show and follow us on social media to stay up to date on all things branding.
1: Thanks again for listening.